So I'd like to request your attention for a few, uh, a little story that I will uh, begin with and uh, some scattered thoughts on uh, a number of little pieces that I believe come partly from groups, partly from conversations with you and uh, bits and pieces that I feel are um, useful to take note of. And I hope uh, this all in some magic way comes together as a talk. So, <laughs> so let, me, let me start with the good bit. This is a, um, um, this is a small uh, piece of uh, advice on meditation. It comes from the Connected Discourses. It is a short sutta from the section on Satipatthana, which, as I have uh, mentioned early on in the course, is holding a lot of little nuggets. Uh, by my personal reckoning, this is one of those nuggets. And I hope you'll uh, appreciate some of its uh, uh, charm, but also some of its practical value. There is a frame story to this story. So the actual teaching is framed, is, has a narrative frame. The narrative frame, I, I will spare reading this to you. Uh, the narrative frame is that uh, Venerable Ananda, a great champion of the nuns, uh, goes and visits the nuns and uh, seeks out their uh, quarters. Uh, and uh, they expect him and he generally would be expected to deliver some teaching and respond to some of their uh, needs. And then um, the nuns, contrary to what is expected, um, when Ananda has taken his seat, uh, quite confidently indicate there are here, Ananda, sir, a number of nuns who abides with minds well established in the four foundations of mindfulness. Their understanding is becoming ever greater and more excellent. The English tones it a little down in the Pali, actually, it becomes obvious that these nuns have realizations, that they have a very good samadhi, and basically that they start to begin to see some colors. Yeah? Ananda uh, very soberly says, so it is, sisters, so it is. Uh, indeed, for anybody, sisters, whether monk or non, who abides with a mind well established in the foundations of mindfulness, this is what we call the establishments of mindfulness, it is to be exact expected that their understanding becomes ever greater and ever more excellent. Then Ananda gives a, gives a talk and uh, goes, goes to the Buddha, tells him the whole story. The Buddha then proves of his response and elaborates. This is the piece that is uh, the crucial story here. And Buddha says, here, Ananda, a practitioner abides, contemplating body as body, ardent, fully aware, mindful, leading away from the unhappiness that comes from wanting the things of the world. And for one who is abiding, contemplating body as body, a bodily object, a bodily state arises, a bodily distress, or a mental sluggishness, or a sudden scattering of the mind in outward direction. Now, this, or, this already, I, I'm not sure whether you, you understand the weightiness of this. Yeah? We're having here professional meditators, we're having a fully awakened Buddha, and one of his most dedicated disciples, and the fully awakened one tells to his dedicated disciple in a matter-of-fact tone that a well-intended, skilled meditator somehow suddenly falls prey to a bodily fever, which is a polite term for sexual desire, um, <laughs> or that he falls prey to some awkward physical sensation that makes him uncomfortable, or that he falls prey to mental sluggishness, uh, or that his mind suddenly and inexplicably is scattered outward. Yeah? That alone is quite an acknowledgement from these uh, lofty people here uh, that are our protagonists. What comes now is even more uh, unexpected. 
then that practitioner should direct his mind to some satisfactory image. Yeah? This is a totally unexpected piece of advice. You know, what we would expect is stern admonition to rouse energy and overcome the obstacles, to acknowledge uh, wholesome intentions and back, back from the paths of sensory indulgence or from even thinking about sensory indulgences onto the straight and narrow, or um, some suitable contemplation that uh, indicates the, the woefulness of one's current uh, pursuits, or else uh, at least some kind of mindfulness advice to basically establish some perspective and just in a quietly observant way be with this. Yeah? But none of this is happening. We are actually told here that the, the practitioner should take up, and this is a straight intervention technique, we should take up animita, so the idea of animita is a, an image in the limiters can come in all senses, but the most famous ones are visual. So images uh, that appear in the inner eye. The, sometimes uh, the limiters have to do with things that arise from the mind base. Uh, in certain traditions, a great value is given to those limiters, those inner images that then act as objects of unification of mind. But the word limiter occurs every on every second page in the Pali Canon. So the idea to reduce limiters to only uh, visual meditational objects that take the mind to deeper samadhi is a very limited interpretation. In fact, nimittas occur in all senses. And sometimes, in this case, for example, a nimitta has almost the flavor of something being conjured up. So we are, the meditator here is told because he is sleepy or sluggish, because he is distracted, because he is in a state of physical discomfort or because his mind is engaging in sensuality, the meditator here is told to seek out some pleasant or some lovely image. No further um, narrowing down of, of, of that image is given, which has made uh, the commentators somewhat nervous. Um, <laughs> Uh, in the Visuddhimagga text, uh, several hundred years uh, post-dating this text here, uh, the commentator Buddha Gosa, one of the, the great icons of uh, Theravada commentarial redactorship, uh, somewhat wryly says, well, maybe the image of the Buddha would be a suitable, pleasant. <laughs> yeah. one, uh, one can almost uh, discern a certain sternness in his voice and a furrowed brow when he says that. Uh, but the, the sutta is remarkably liberal. No further stipulations are uh, given for this satisfactory image. And then it continues. When the mind is directed, this is the key term, to some satisfactory image, happiness is born. From this happiness, joy is born. With a joyful mind, the body relaxes. A relaxed body feels content, and with, a mind of, and with the mind of one content, one becomes unified, yeah? one becomes concentrated or still. The practitioner then reflects, the purpose for which I directed my mind has been accomplished, so now I shall withdraw my directed attention from the image, and he or she withdraws and no longer thinks upon or thinks about the image. The practitioner understands, I am not thinking upon or think, thinking about anything inwardly mindful, I am content. This is directed meditation. And what is undirected meditation? Not directing his mind outward, the practitioner uh, understands, my mind is not directed outwards. She understands, not focused on before or after, free, undirected and further, the practitioner understands, I abide, observing body as body, ardent, fully aware, mindful, I am content. This is undirected meditation. In other words, our practitioner continues with the four satipatthanas. This thing is then repeated, not just for the body, but actually for Vedanupassana, for Chitta Nupassana, for Dhamma Nupassana. 
And so, Ananda, I have taught directed meditation and I have taught undirected meditation. Whatever it is to be done by a teacher with compassion for the welfare of students, that has been done by me out of compassion for you. Here are the roots of trees, here are empty spaces. Get down and meditate. Don't be lazy. Don't become one who is later remorseful. This is my instruction to you. <laughs> so, I think that the story has, uh, is remarkable in many ways. It, it has, by the way, parallel passages and that seem to corroborate what is said in Pali. So this directed panidaya and undirected apanidaya type of meditation are obviously different attitudes a meditator can shuttle back and forth. Yeah? So the practical piece here is very clear that even a professional contemplative at the feet of the Buddha is obviously capable of falling into sluggishness, of falling into distraction, or falling into physical discomfort, or uh, what is politely called a, a feverish state, yeah? a fevering of the mind. So I think we can take heart uh, when we struggle in the topography of hindrances, um, in our uh, course of practicing those four establishments of mindfulness. The recommendation seems quite uh, pragmatic, and uh, in some way the, the liberality of that uh, recommendation seems psychologically completely plausible if the mind finds it difficult to hold an undirected type of inquiry. Um, then let us find something that the mind actually enjoys. Yeah. I find the sequence, and I hope it hasn't escaped your attention, the sequence of what happens when he finds a pleasant or satisfactory or lovely image. When the mind is directed, happiness is born. From the happiness, joy is born. So, piti is born, sukha is born. Uh, the body relaxes, yeah? kayang pasampayati, the body relaxes. So, there's a clear connection between experienced pleasantness, experienced energetic vitalization, experienced bodily and mental joy, which is then echoed by bodily relaxation as a prerequisite for stillness. Yeah. And then with the body that feels content and with the mind, uh, so with the body that feels content, the mind of one content becomes unified. There's some psychological savvy in this, and it's very, very plain. Um, it, it means, conversely, that you can't get unified by aversion. Yeah? It also means you can't get concentrated by willpower. Okay? The unification entails relaxation. The relaxation entails some degree of contentment. The contentment entails some degree of vitalization. And the vitalization comes about something that gives you joy. Yeah. There we have some very clear and plausible psychological sequence. You, know, you don't need to be a Pali expert to make sense of this, isn't it? We all know from anecdotal evidence that there is some, some truth in this. Yeah. So I, um, I'm going to hang this up on the wall so that you can later reread it. It's in the... Uh, connected discourses. And um, that was the good pit for now. Um, <laughs> I was going to basically uh, make a little map, a map that uh, tries to look at what we do in meditation from very high up, yeah, sort of a very short map. And then I would like to look at some of the problems that uh, occur when things go wrong in meditation. So I, uh, I call that ways of getting lost. Yeah. So what happens when we're not mindful? Or where do we get waylaid? Where is mindfulness trapped? So the little map right ahead, this is totally non-canonical. So take that with the necessary pinch of salt. I cannot furnish Pali terms for uh, this map. But it is a map that I believe many of you who have been meditating for a number of years will, will agree with me. That meditative practices have differing dimension. You know, Buddhist meditation en entails a number of, that we take care of a number of different dimensions. The first of these dimensions has to do with calming and with stabilizing. Basically, uh, this begins somewhere, uh, 
by what psychologists would call self-soothing skills and goes to jhanic unification. Okay, that's the other end of the spectrum. But basically that means wherever we meet our minds, wherever we encounter our minds, our minds basically from there on we need to learn how to modulate that mind towards a greater stability, towards a greater stillness, towards less franticness, towards less speed, and towards less focus on processing sensory input. In other words, we need to basically settle the baby. Yeah? If you want it very uh, yeah, sloppily formulated, then basically you need, to, you need to settle the baby of your mind. And when your mind is very calm, you need to know how to continue deeper into calm. When your mind is very crazy, you need to know how to take it from really crazy to a little bit less crazy. These are skills. These are virtues. These are not blessings or graces or initiations. Yeah? These, are, these are skills. This is something that is totally learnable. Yeah? Like, by the way, that's the magic piece about Buddhist meditation. Uh, Sati is a virtue. It is something that can be practiced. It's not a result as a state or it's not a God-given skill you have. It's something that we can train, we can become proficient in, that we can identify obstacles, that we can strengthen both in our intention, in our attention, in our proficiency when we, when we practice it. Yeah. This is a huge message. You know, this is the message basically of the East. If you read the wonderful chapter of, on attention in William James, 1890, Principles of Psychology, wonderful chapter, definitely worth reading. Um, he says a lot of really intuitive things about attention. But there is a kind of resignated tone towards the end of that chapter where he basically says, yeah, it would be really good to instill that in, 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 in this, not just in disciples, in, in school kids and in, in students, um, you know, and it's useful to connect things you know with things you don't yet know and deepen this. But basically, it seems to be the case that the degree of attention that is available to people is more or less given. Yeah. So, in some strange way, he felt that this is not a virtue that can be practiced, but this is basically a natural gift or the absence of such, yeah? which gives you a very different take on training mindfulness, isn't it? So the big message, I think, of the East, uh, the yogic and the Buddhist traditions maybe particularly are saying this stuff can be learned. You know, you may think you're good at it or you may think you're lousy at it, but however good or lousy at it you are, you can learn that. You, know? you can learn more than you know. Uh, for some people, this will be easier than for others, but basically everyone can learn this. You, know? you don't need to invent it. It already happens. But if you know how it works, you can actually deepen, strengthen, broaden this whole thing, make it more accessible. It becomes a paradigm of your mind. You know, it is something that is doable. Yeah. That's quite a powerful and empowering statement. I find that quite heartening. Yeah. So many of the things we l read about, here are two meditators, um, obviously for them this is very clear. Something can be done, something can be trained, you can be schooled in one of these things, you can discern and you can begin to help yourself. Yeah. That's a very powerful statement. So, First big dimension of Buddhist meditation, calming, stabilizing. That means learning to unify the mind, learning to pacify the mind, learning to modulate the mind in ways that it becomes more stable, that it moves away from agitation, that it finds ease. This is very, very important. Samatha begins with creating ease. That means not necessarily that your life has to be perfect, it, but it means that you create in discomfort something called ease. Yeah? Where there is dis-ease or unease, you learn to create a little niche and a little space where you can breathe in and where you can abide and where you can then begin to widen and soften and dwell. Yeah? 
So creating that space of ease within the given conditions of our life is, a, is, a, is part of a samatha skill. So the idea, you know, when I came to this, I thought basically meditation was, it's about control. Yeah? Difficult things are basically managed by control. If you are afraid, you control. If things are chaotic, you control. If things are difficult, you push harder. Yeah? So classic adolescent masculine type of approach. Yeah? <laughs> if, if it doesn't work with violence, use more violence. Yeah? <laughs> As, and um, thank, thankfully, I tried that in the context of Buddhist meditation practice, where the, you know, the collateral damage is generally minimal. Um, <laughs> But it was very quickly clear this didn't work. Yeah? This, this didn't work. This was clear even to me. And um, it was necessary to uh, attune a little bit to that challenge. So uh, finding ease means finding a way to relate differently to what I'm doing or to what is happening. I like to think of meditation as an intelligent relationship to one's own experience. I keep harping on about this sati being a, basically a form of relationship. Practically, actually, I could be more specific. I, uh, I would say it's, it's a move from episodic uh, attention to an embodied mindfulness. You know, we're all kind of attentive in a sort of stuttering way. You know, here a little bit, there a little bit. Uh, in a sort of chumpy way. Generally, I'm interested in the nice bit. Uh, and as soon as the nice bit is over the hump, I'm not so interested anymore. So my attention moves on to the next promising nice bit or to the next promising nasty bit if it's unpleasant enough to garner all of my attentional focus. But it's very stuttering. So what we do when we tr train mindfulness, we begin training attention. We take responsibility where our attention goes. Yeah? That's not easy. You know, you've all been familiar with meditation teachers making so easy statements. Just kind of relax and be with the breath and just let it rest there. And it, and it doesn't rest. You know, it's a damn flea circus. It's just jumping around. It's, it doesn't do what you, you know. I, in fact, attention is geared to jump around. You know, it's geared to scan. It's not meant to stay still. You know? So if you have suspected yourself of a congenital condition, no, attention is meant to scan the horizon. It's meant to be mobile. It's meant to be moving around through your various sensory systems and look whether there is something to be found or something threatening or something necessary that necessitates your intervention. It's meant to do that. To stabilize attention is a real skill. It's not necessary for survival. Uh, we, we happily populated this planet with evolutionary attention patterns. You don't need to be awakened to make sure that your species continues. You know? um, so that's, that's a crucial piece there. Attention moves, and if we want to stabilize that attention, we need to do particular things. We need to be kind to it. We need to find it. We need to find out what it does. We need to find out what scatters it. We need to find out what helps it unify. We need to find out, dare I say, what it likes, yeah? Yeah, and without being afraid of that. And then acknowledge that often if it gets what it likes, it doesn't actually get content or joyous or, or calm, but it just gets a little disappointed after a while or a little bored after a while or even more scattered or anxious that what it enjoyed will not be there tomorrow or it begins to feel remorseful because it gobbled it all up in one go. Or, yeah. So we realize we need to do a lot of learning. That attention is an unruly, sort of capricious beast, yeah? It does all kinds of things. So the next big dimension of meditative training seems to be when we learn some stabilizing and some calming and some finding ease, we need to learn something else. We need to de-identify, yeah? We need to step back and get a bigger perspective. Many of us think that is meditation, 
you know, go away from where it hurts, observe, find safety, find distance, and then kind of we look at it, preferably from afar so that it doesn't scare us, doesn't flood us, doesn't overwhelm us, doesn't do any nasty things to us. Yeah. In fact, we're quite keen on going away really far sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes just observing is not enough. We take the binoculars and turn them the other way around. So, that we, you know, it doesn't actually increase the distance. It just increases the psychological sense of detachment. Yeah. So the second piece, which is very crucial, that we learn to move off the stage. Yeah. First of all, we're player on stage. We're doing our stuff with the events in our life. And we're really joining the fray. And on, in this stage, we're trying to de-identify, move back, move out, learn to see, oh, it's happening, but I'm not actually doing it. This part of me that seems to have something to do with its occurrence, but another part of me is actually capable of witnessing this. And somehow that witnessing has a modulating influence on it. Yeah. So we gain distance, we gain perspective, and... We, we gain another place by, by moving back. Now, this moving back is, is wonderful. It is, I would deem to be, it to be absolutely indispensable. Learning the skill of gaining perspective is a crucial piece of meditative learning. Yeah. A third dimension in that map would be a deep inquiry. The, the very stuff we have just moved back from, we need to move back in, yeah. in a sort of negotiated, respectful, prudent, kind of loins well-girded way, kind of move, crawl back in and see, is it really as bad as we thought? Can, with what I have just learned from looking at it from a distance, can, with that understanding, can I bring some change to this? Um, th how does it affect me if I go a little closer? Does it really kill me or do I actually realize what I was so afraid of is not killing me but looks different? Is it really what it says it is? You know, so we begin a really deep inquiry. That inquiry generally has a lot of personal dimensions. It, um, it is not thinking about it. It's not, it's not good psychoanalysis. It's contemplative investigation. That means... I bring my mindfulness and my samadhi and my Brahma-vihara skills to this inquiry. Yeah. I'm not going there naked and with, uh, with audacity. I'm carefully and in a negotiated way after I have found that I can stay out of the problem, then I find I can actually begin to engage the problem. If I can't stay out of the problem, this is not the time to engage the problem. If it's going to rope me in at any moment and I haven't learned to stay out and hold the distance, de-identify, then I'm probably not yet equipped to investigate. If you want to deal with dangerous things, you need to be sure that you can run very fast. Okay? It's very simple. Every therapist will tell you that. And meditators have... Um, have, the sim have a similar experience. Ajahn Mun, a man whom one not, cannot fault on audacity and rigor in his practice, uh, one of the icons of the Thai forest tradition, uh, at one place Riley commented that, you know, the meditator goes out onto his meditation path. Uh, and, you know, Thai forest tradition sometimes uses martial language. So he says, goes, meditator goes out on the meditation path, walking up and down to hunt his defilements. Yeah? Only to find out after two or three rounds that the hunter has become the hunted. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? So this is a kind of non-psychological way to describe the same pattern. You need to be sure that you can basically keep out of trouble before you tackle bigger things in your life. You, know? you don't jump into everything that arises. So that third dimension often takes you in very personal territory. It takes you into biographical territory. It takes you into psychological territory. And I deem this to be fairly indispensable. Now, meditators need to learn something about their build-up. They need to 
learn something of how they strategize, how they cope with conflict, how they cope with need, how they negotiate um, frustration. You know, it's better to know that. As a meditator, you need to have some idea how you operate in this world, particularly how you operate when the going is not good. Now, that is likely to bring you to some reflection what the formative influences were in your life, you know, what you have learned, which models you have received. Um, you may find out that you're doing stuff that has never worked for you, but that was basically what you've learned from your old folks. Uh, or you compensated for them, you know, you've become really powerful and you've held mommy's rage and daddy's depression, you know, and to find out that this is not actually yours. You know, you had to do that to make their lives saner because you needed them and somehow you've made their lives easier by helping them hold their stuff. But now you're living your own life and holding their depression doesn't help you and it doesn't help them anymore because it has worked. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there is a personal dimension to this. So. And it's important to acknowledge this. The language of meditation is often a language that uses psychology as terms. That doesn't mean that the Buddha was a psychologist or that meditation and therapy is totally equivalent. That doesn't mean that. But it just means that the Buddha spoke in a very specialized language about inner experience, about mind cultivation. There's a lot of specific jargon in involved and that jargon is found in the Pali, very, very clear. Often things are very clear. Um, but we don't th think in Pali. Even if we translate the Pali, we don't think necessarily in those terms. So we think in terms that come close to the folks who study how the mind operates. Yeah? And for about 100 years, that has been psychology. So psychological folks, therapists, sometimes philosophers, uh, people who study mind functions obviously use jargon. They use specialist language. And it makes sense that Buddhist specialist language, when being translated, resorts to existing language that deals with details of the mind. So there is a problem there, because we obviously would like to have Buddhism, a Buddhism that doesn't use jargon. Please don't give me Pali and don't use any difficult psychological world. I just, just tell me how it is. Yeah? But if you, if you go to a dentist or to an orthopedic surgeon, you wouldn't expect that he tells you how it is in absolute everyday language. You would expect that the guy has some specialist jargon. You would expect that his thinking revolves around a field that he has proficiency in uh, that entails a lot of learning, some details that is, is not there in everyday language. Yeah? So it's a bit similar with meditation. It's difficult to talk about mind processes. And uh, it, it makes sense that Buddhist translators and Buddhist practitioners and uh, meditation folk basically begin to relate to their own experience in terms of psychological language. We all do that. Even if you hate psychology, um, you will probably still use terms like complex and emotion and neurosis. And, you know, all this stuff comes from psychology. So it seems the natural ally, if we look at the, the psychology of Buddhist understanding of mind, that we re rely to some extent on our contrast as a first stop the language Western psychology uses for mind. That doesn't equate Buddhism with psychology. It doesn't equate the Buddha with Freud or it doesn't equate, yeah? But it's, it's, it's clear we need some tools to be able to name some of the processes. This is not everyday stuff, as you will agree with me. So the fourth of the dimensions is a bigger dimension, it's a dimension when we begin to understand the personal, again, in universal terms. Yeah. We begin to move out from the personal, from the story, from the biographical. We begin to move out and begin to see how does, how does awakening take place? How does conditionality take place? What are steps of 
development, you know. There's a kind of an abstract nature to this. We begin to abstract from the individual and begin to discern bigger patterns. That means, having been through my personal story, I can now recognize, although your personal story looks different, things I can begin to understand where you are or what's happening in you. I, be, I begin to see parallels because I recognize the pattern. I don't know the specificity of your story, but I recognize the pattern. Yeah? So it also means I begin, begin to understand notions of growth or notions of freedom or notions of uh, resistance or notions of... Um, Stuff that are hindrances on the path or stuff that is helping to wake up. So this fourth dimension helps me to come out of my personal story, my personal language, my personal imagery, my personal uh, tricks and uh, tools of the trade, and I begin to actually identify a path. That's important. I begin to identify a trajectory. I begin to identify stages on that path. And even though the details may look considerably different, I actually see, ah, this belongs to this, this belongs to this. Yeah. So I need to step back from my own story. I need to have looked at a few other stories. I need to have rubbed up against a larger tradition, maybe, or larger traditions, preferably. Uh, and you see, ah, okay. So we end up with bigger segments of of not just my story, but of what it takes to go from sheer ignorance to awakening. That's very useful. So these four uh, dimensions I deem to be fairly indispensable. Now, all of these uh, dimensions, they they have, unfortunately, their own pathologies. So if you get stuck in the pathology of the first one, then you become a control and samatha junkie. Basically, the statement is, this mind is never calm enough. You know, I'm not going to listen to any other Buddhism before I don't have jhanas. You know, don't talk to me about ethics or right understanding or, or conditioned arising. I need jhanas. That's what I need. And before I get that, nothing else is of importance. And then you're trying to peg away at your particular take on jhanas, which will be difficult to find because you... Uh, if you refuse to have anything to do with right understanding, having right understanding how to attain unification of mind is probably also out of reach. <laughs> yeah. So you're stuck. Yeah. All of these pathologies speak of particular stuckness in, in our approach to practice. The stuckness of channel of the second dimension <clears throat> is, is um, a stuckness that has to do with... Um, it's not safe enough. You know, I need to go further away. I need to split off even further. This is still way too risky for me to engage with anything. You know, I need to move really out. You know, this is really, really still too threatening to me. So, I need more distance, more control, more power. You know, that second type is uh, favors dissociation. Dissociation, by the way, is again one of these psychological terms and. It comes in sort of household and clinical uh, DSM-5 worthy forms. So uh, let me get that out of the way. We all dissociate, okay? Dissociation in the way we use it in a non-clinical terminology, dissociation is something as harmless as daydreaming. Uh, You know, somebody speaks on the phone to you and you begin to doodle or you get your distant look in a meeting or you're just fantasize yourself away from something that is has become a little boring uh, yeah so those are the harmless types of you know garden variety uh, forms of dissociation and I would expect you all to do this in fact dissociation as a strategy is one of our first defense reflexes it's our first defense reflexes that helps us to protect great vulnerability in our systems, as particularly as babies, uh, at times when we don't have access to aggression, when we don't have access to language, so that we are not overwhelmed by powerful sensory stimuli. Yeah? So dissociation allows us to just <gasps> hold our breath and reduce feeling. Basically, the simplest form to understand dissociation is it's a split between thinking 
and feeling and between thinking and bodily experience. In the case of, uh, of the baby, which doesn't think generally, in as far as we know, we don't really know what babies do that much, but uh, there, is, there is a widespread belief that babies don't think. I, I have my doubts about this, but they probably don't think in discursive manner, yeah? because they have yet to learn language. So uh, the re reduction of sensory input by, re say, holding the breath or by splitting off, yeah? by going somewhere in one's head. By, uh, later on we say things, I, I stand by myself or I, you know, the out-of-body experience is a classic type of dissociation. Um, there are good reasons why meditators ought to be careful around this, what may be a life-saving um, coping strategy that is Mother Nature's technique to help us survive our childhoods um, may become a bad habit. You know, we, we may begin to practice dissociation, to basically cope or use dissociation not as a survival technique but as a, de as a defense mechanism, not because we wouldn't survive but because we, we avoid conflict like that or we avoid discomfort or we avoid acknowledging need. Yeah. So there are many different ways a dissociation can work. It generally has as an effect a split and with that split, if that split becomes, uh, I'm not sure whether that is the word chronified, does that exist as a word? Becomes chronic. Yeah. So we end up living in a place where we are less connected less connected to our bodies, less connected to our needs, less connected to our hearts, less connected to others' needs, others' hearts, others' bodies. Yeah? And we seem to know everything, but we don't actually feel it properly. And the effect of that is I feel always at a distance, pleasantly detached in some cases, but also painfully removed. Yeah. And the general effect of that is disempowerment. I'm always helpless, you know, because I can only act if I'm not disconnected, if I'm not dissociated. I can only act where, I'm, where I feel, where I'm here, as, a, as an intelligent, heartful being. And if I lose that place, it may feel less conflicting and it may feel subjectively safer, but I also lose my capacity to engage, to be responsible. Yeah. It's really bad if you have dissociated people around you. It's really unsafe yeah, because they don't pick up on things. And if they pick up, they go into some kind of cognitive rabbit mode and don't do anything. You know, they, they don't come and save you. Because they see you drown a wave, but they don't jump in. Yeah? Because to jump in, they would need to feel, they would need to be empowered to act. So that's why dissociation. Uh, and you can re remain remarkably functional while dissociated. Yeah? It's, if you study this sort of thing, um, you can be highly successful in being dissociated. Um, as a meditator, this is particularly dangerous because you are taught to, to de-identify. Yeah? Akinjanu tells you the second stage of meditation is learning to de-identify. This sounds really like what I'm already doing. Yeah? Yeah? Finally, somebody understands me yeah? and spiritualizes my neurotic strategy and I'm allowed, I'm actually encouraged to split off and disappear. But as you can imagine, the net effect is it won't get me awake. It won't get me a better human being. It won't help me feel connected. It won't let me engage more fully in my life. And I'm sure you've understood this. this what we're doing here is, a, is about helping us to come more in, not, not to disappear more. Yeah? We disappear in the face of overwhelming adversity or uh, in the fear of loss of our resources. But every long-term goal in this practice has to be that we come more fully in, to be more fully here, you know, heartfully, uh, more embodied, more caring. Yeah. So 
dissociation is a challenge for meditators. Because meditators, uh, there's a sort of self-selection going on. People uh, are interested in meditation if they already have learned some of the value of de-identifying. Yeah? They know this long before they do their first meditation retreat. They have an understanding that meditation has something to do with understanding the, the relationship between mind as a sensitive space and mind objects as the stuff that pops up in that sensitive space. Yeah? If you weren't somewhere aware of this, you would never turn up on a meditation retreat. The idea to, to be silent, to be with strangers and not talk to them, and to sit for 10 hours a day would freak you to the extent that you'd never set foot into one of these institutions. <laughs> okay. So there is a sort of pre-selection that takes place to people coming to meditation retreats. It means also that amidst, you know, in this pre-selection means you're probably better at dissociating than your average person on the road. Yeah? <laughs> if you begin to feel insulted, I'm afraid this is exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> So, uh, what would be telltale signs of dissociation? Let's be straight. Well, one of the telltale signs would be I keep falling asleep whenever somebody tells me to meditate. You know, I'm bright awake when I eat my salad, when I do my little walk, when I listen to somebody, but as soon as I close my eyes and I'm trying to meditate and I just feel this incredible, you know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm, a bag is pulled over me and, you know, the air seems to get liquid and sweat breaks out and I don't seem to be able to string together two thoughts. Yeah? And this incredible lethargy, lethargy just drowns me. So that would be, if that happens time and again, you know, after you've been bright awake uh, and then somebody rings a bell or says, now let's meditate or be mindful or follow your breath, or some of the other key phrases, and something of that nature keeps happening to you, then there's probably something that has not to do with lack of sleep. Yeah? If, if you feel spacey often, if you, if you feel disoriented regularly, you know, if things that were clear suddenly become opaque, or if you don't know anymore anything. Yeah? So that would be, those would be signs that probably something happens in you. If, you. if you see very clearly things, but you can't seem to engage with them, they seem like behind um, milk glass, uh, like behind opaque glass, or if, if you don't feel parts of your body, that may be an indication. Yeah. Mind, mind you, there is also any of these things you can also have without dissociation. You may have a physical condition or you may simply be preoccupied with a topic that is so much taking your attention that right now you, you don't have overwhelming compassion for everybody in the room. So these are not definite, definite signs of dissociation, but those would be if they keep recurring. So sleepiness, um, incredible scatteredness of mind. Or numbness is a, is a big one. Yeah? So kind of just not feeling. Not, n not knowing what you actually feel. That's an interesting one. Yeah. So when you don't know what mood you have. When you don't know, when you realize, I'm sitting on an incredibly full bladder and I just haven't noticed. Or when you hear, you know, your stomach roaring and you haven't noticed for the last one and a half hour that you're hungry. Yeah. So this connect between your cognitive capacities and your affective resonance, between your cognitive capacities and your bodily, particularly needs or sensations, postures, yeah. strange phenomena. Um, if you have a an urge that you that meditation entails that you need to control more, more and more. You know, that you become so sensitive, and people are full of negative vibrations, yeah, and mess mess with your meditation, and you need to you need to go and sit on your own, or 
you know, you certainly can't sit behind bulky men or, or behind, behind people whose breathing is audible or something like that. Or, you know, you need, uh, if you sense that there's some people that just trip you up, you know, they just kind of, they just trigger you and you can't stand them. Or if groups kill you, you know. Basically, I, I can really go, well meditate, but you know, groups just kill me. To listen to all these people with all their problems, it just, <laughs> you know, it just does you in. It just messes up your samadhi. Um, uh, those would be sort of indications that, that you may rely on strategies of dissociation, of basically not feeling, not having, of splitting off. If you feel, you know, all the stuff that they say up there on stage or in groups is really not for you that you know precisely why you're here and you come and get this piece and all the stuff is basically a meditative obstacle, you know. It's one of those sixth medit meditative obstacles which there isn't a Pali term but you have identified this obstacle. It consists basically of other human beings, group activities, <laughs> the schedule, anything you know, work period, all this is basically an obstacle to your practice, then there's probably a chance that something is slightly, that you're relying on some form of control, which is obviously irritated by that schedule. So, uh, there are, you know, we often weave in and out of forms of dissociation, you know, and assume, uh, let's decriminalize that. The question is not whether you do it, the question is when you do it. Yeah? Like with all obstacles, like with all of these hindrances, Yukka has mentioned a few days ago, basically, unless you're in jhana, you, you, you do this. Yeah? So the question is not where the bad Buddhists, it occasionally happens to them. The question is where right now do these hindrances take place? So dissociation, in terms of the five hindrances, can be an obsession with sensory impact. It can be, an, it can be sleepiness. Um, dissociation can be of, uh, having something to do with doubt because doubt is often the result of not knowing clearly and not feeling clearly, particularly not feeling clearly the priority of things. So uh, when you have lots of doubt, chances are that there's some dissociative stuff going on is more high because that doubt is generally the result of not feeling values clearly or not feeling clearly needs or not feeling clearly what affectively happens in your heart. Okay? So because you don't feel this, you keep finding it difficult to make choices, to establish a position, to pursue uh, a chosen trajectory. Yeah? So they, obviously while old Buddhism doesn't speak in, those, in terms of dissociation, it actually covers quite a bit of dissociative territory under different headings. Yeah. And if we care looking for, um, for dissociative descriptions, we find them in the suttas. You know? We find that people are, are assailed by inability to act or that they find that they are numbed or that they are confused, you know? that they don't know where to put their foot, as it so says. Or they want to put their foot in one place and the foot goes in another place, <laughs> as the old ways. So, consider this, uh, don't pathologize, uh, uh, it's to be expected that we all do some of this, and, the, and you know, this is curable, it, it, doesn't need, it doesn't need drugs, it just needs acknowledgement, and it needs also acknowledgement particularly of the dukkha factor, what price we pay when we are dissociated. We cannot transcend when we're dissociated. That's a, a big price. In other words, you can only transcend what you have arrived at. If you want to transcend or sublimate something, you need to actually be up there where it's happening. If you're dissociating from it in the hope you can kind of transcend from a distance, yeah? <laughs> this doesn't cut it. Yeah. So, while it's psychologically not terribly salubrious to dissociate on the, in the long run, it's, uh, spiritually it's a disaster yeah. because you basically keep depriving yourself of your energy, of your connectedness, of your engaging power, and of, of the clarity of your heart. Yeah. 
So you keep living sort of in a cognitive parallel dimension in which you know considerable amounts of stuff that you actually can't live, can't hold, can't bear, can't um, translate. Good, enough of dissociation. Um, <coughs> pathologies of the third dimension. Patholo remember the third dimension was getting back in where I got out from, understanding deep contemplative inquiry. So the pathology on that score is basically dramatizing. Yeah? I keep having the feeling, ah, there's more in there. There are more lost inner children to be saved, more traumas to be worked through. I need to really cathartically get this off my system. Yeah? Uh, I'm sure there is something lurking in there, although I don't have any clear memories. Something horrible must have happened to me, which I need to unearth. You know, uh, I can't really do all this big, spacious meditation. I need to really get in there and find the drama of my personal history. You know? I need to interview more relatives. I need to read more <laughs> literature. You know, I, I need to basically experience more misery. You know, happiness is not to be trusted. You know, happiness this is for people who haven't received the bad news yet. You know, <laughs> so I need to go in there. Yeah, and there's an endless supply of things to be felt, things to be sifted through, things to be released, healed. You know. And uh, obviously the vitalization of practice comes from me feeling intensity, intensity of drama, intensity of conflict. And, you know, maybe you have a particular fondness of doubt or of pain or, you know, people vary, but they, they recreate situations in which they experience a degree of intensity that gives them the sense, ah, yes, that's practice, you know. You know, really, now we're out. You know, the big guns are out for me. I've really got to plow through this, yeah. So, while this domain obviously has to do with meeting one's angels and one's demons and, and acknowledging both one's strength and one's hang-up, the, the pathological part of being stuck on that dimension is the refusal to actually open up into the universal peace. It's the refusal to acknowledge, hey, they were also good things, or uh, I don't need to do, this is finished. <laughs> you know, sometimes things are finished, and you can't chew any more insight out of going through this thing one more time, or... Sometimes you've actually learned your lesson, you know. There's something in us that wants to wake up and that is not stupid. Something in us that is deeply, deeply committed to learning. It's very, very difficult to stay stupid in this process. Something in us really wants to grow. Yeah? And sometimes, you know, we've done that patch. You know, it's, it's, it's finished. That one is understood to the extent it can be understood. We need to move on. However much we've gotten used into the fight, we've gotten used to the narrative, we've gotten used to the protagonists that keep coming up, and sometimes we're through. We're through with it. And it's necessary to move on, to open the perspective. So I'm sure you all know people who get stuck. Yeah? It's easy to see it in others, like so often, uh, very easy to see where other people are not getting the message, getting stuck. Um, Chances are that while we look at others and easily diagnose their hang-ups, um, some of our own hang-ups remain undiagnosed. Yeah. So the, the prudent meditator uh, looks at what, what we feel particularly judgmental about, what intrigues us in others, what what we feel particularly contemptuous of or what we find particularly appalling in others' behavior. And it is very likely that some of the intensity of our sentiment has something to do with, uh, I think the polite term would be outsourcing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is, a, I think, is it Levinas who says, you know, we... We only hate in others what we basically have not acknowledged in ourselves. 
the big message for the pathology on channel, on this channel, on this dimension is, I believe it was Mark Epstein who put that very neatly in some place. And he said, very simply, um, the content of your mental streams is infinitely less important than the consciousness that knows them. So this is a really big piece of which people from the West struggle with. The fact that the stuff that is the content of my experience, something I have learned to identify, something I have learned to narrate, something I have learned to see as my life, that that content is a lot less important than establishing a knowing, a knowing consciousness that is capable of seeing that content and seeing the change in that content and seeing conditionality in that content, seeing the dynamic processes in that content. We're so encouraged to identify with my life, my position, my view, my perceptions, my story. And yet, and this is the message of the East in a big way from, from Buddhist teaching, that there is beside the content that happens in a horizontal lifespan, me and the unfolding of time, that content has to come into perspective from a vertical that says, that connects the present moment with a timelessness, yeah? a vertical axis of timelessness that, that meets my life in the present moment. That's the gateway, that's the, the eye of the needle, that present moment. And in that vertical axis, I establish a type of knowing that is capable of understanding how my subjective self comes together. That vertical axis allows me to understand how the place called self is constellated. And that is a powerful shift from a vertical, uh, from a horizontal into a vertical. Both of them are real. Both of them, that is my understanding, are needed. we here are so much focused on identifying, struggling, valuing, valuing the content of our life as it unfolds in an individual's um, time lifespan. And to get a perspective on this, how this subject that seems to be the protagonist of the story in the horizontal, how this protagonist constellates itself. That's a powerful message of contemplative investigation and that takes place uh, when we learn to release our grip on that content and get more familiar in a deepener relationship to the to the knowing consciousness that is capable of holding that content in perspective. Pathology on the fourth of those uh, dimensions um, seems to be a lot less uh, big, a lot less dangerous. Um, maybe, maybe an over, an overt fondness for maps, including maps of meditation and meditation. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you know, trying to understand things in big ways as a way to not engage with the nitty-gritty and not get mucky uh, in the process of meditating. So, um, but I I believe that is probably a less less, uh, grave condition of stuckness than, than the other three. Chances are that you recognize yourself in many of them um, and Yes, that's probably a good sign. You know, the ones you know are the ones that are at least acknowledged, and uh, it may help to to see some of the power of this exercise when we begin to identify what resists this exercise, or where this exercise meets the resistance of the mind that does not want to yield, that does not want to wake up, that wants to insist on its habits, that wants to insist on its apparent certainties. And basically that says, yeah, maybe this is true, but I just don't have any pleasure in it. 
enough, thank you very much. You know, it's too difficult. That was Ajahn Chah's, that was people said about Ajahn Chah when he came back from his wanderings to his home village. They invited him, built him a monastery and came and ardently listened to his talks. And then they kept saying, you're right. You know, this is perfectly, yeah, it's very plausible what you say, but it's just too difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, sorry, we can't do this. You're right, we have no objections. It's very inspiring to hear, but it's too difficult. Sorry, we can't do it. See you next week. Yeah? <laughs> so, fine, let me end here. Let's take a minute to be quiet and then walk in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.